Good morning. Hope everybody's doing all right. There you go. Most of us are. Um, Good morning and welcome to Redeemer. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here and we are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians and today we're going to be in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Um, Before we jump in, I want to take a quick minute to recap a bit and talk a little bit about where we've been thus far. So first thing, we've learned that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is primarily about the church. Um, And more specifically, the glory of the church. We've seen how God has called together his church. How the establishment of his people, a people of both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, is one of the primary ways that God is revealing his mystery to the world. That all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ. We've talked about our salvation. That we've been rescued by grace through faith from a path of death inhabited by the prince of the power of the air and how we have been placed upon a new path in Christ, a path of good works established by God himself. And last week we talked about how not only have we been reconciled to God, but the path of good works is a path that leads to reconciliation at the horizontal level. And it's through the church that God is fulfilling his goal to unite all things in heaven and on earth, which is the very means by which he is doing away with the old age, the age of sin and death. This next chapter begins outlining further just how God is accomplishing his will. And again, it is through unexpected means, which most of us would probably scoff at. As we look at this text, we're going to kind of be shocked a little bit, or at least we should be shocked a little bit about what's happening in this particular text. So before we jump in, let me pray, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. So Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you love your people. Thank you for the the wonder and beauty of your word, Father. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would just convict us of sin, Father, draw us near to yourself. Help us to become more and more like your son, Jesus, Lord, so that we might show the world what your Father in heaven is like, Father. We love you with all of our hearts, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so prisoners of war is what I've entitled my sermon this morning. A prisoner of war is someone who's been defeated, captured, depending on the enemy, possibly enslaved and maybe even killed. If you're a prisoner of war, you're under lock and key in enemy territory. You're stripped of your freedoms and victory is most likely not on the horizon. At the same time, to be a prisoner of war is also an honor, provided you suffer in an honorable manner. You're recognized as having served your country. Why is this an honor? Right? Because being a prisoner of war means that you have placed yourself in harm's way for the sake of the people whom you're fighting for. And you cannot receive this honor if you don't fight. And this is where our passage kind of starts. I want to read a quick quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that he wrote in one of his um, um, letters from prison while he was under lock and key as a prisoner of war uh, during World War II. He says, we have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. He argues that suffering is actually better for us than good fortune. And what we see in our text this morning is that Paul kind of identifies suffering in the same way. 
We're going to be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, but Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is part of a longer section, which is verses 1 through 13. And the interesting part about verses 1 through 13, which we're going to explore the second half next week, is that it is framed by suffering. It is framed by this idea that, that Paul is going through difficult times. The first verse says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in verse 13 it says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I've talked about this before. Bible scholars call this an inclusio. That's, a, that's your you know, million-dollar word for the day, inclusio, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm framing this section to let you know what I'm talking about. He starts with prisoning. He starts with being imprisoned, and then he ends with suffering. And the interesting part about this section is that he's about to start praying, and then he interrupts his prayer, which is something that he picks up again in verse 14 of chapter 3. He interrupts his prayer. So he starts like this. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. For what reason? What reason is Paul praying? The reason he's praying is because what he wants us to remember is basically the entire book thus far. Basically, this idea that the mystery is being revealed, that all things in heaven and on earth are coming together, that the powers and the principalities have been defeated in Christ, and that Jesus is seated far above those things. And where are we seated? If you remember in chapter 2, where are we seated? We're with Christ, right? Above the earthly powers. Unbelievable. And then he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. A prisoner. Right? That's, that should be shocking to us because he just went on for two chapters about the glories of the church, about the wonder of our salvation, about how all things in heaven and on earth are being reconciled in Christ, about how Jesus is seated on the throne in the heavenly places, and about how we too are seated with him. And then he says, oh yeah, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I'm in prison. I'm in jail. I've lost my freedom, which is really interesting because that should be shocking to his hearers because of all the things he just said. Timothy Gomba's Bible scholar says it like this, if Christ Jesus is exalted to the position of cosmic supremacy over the powers ruling the present evil age, then why is Paul in prison? Why is Paul in prison? Why has the exaltation of Christ resulted in the defeat and humiliation of his servant. This looks less like triumph than a glaring defeat at the hands of the powers that supposedly had been put under the feet of the sovereign Lord Christ. He says another thing. He says, according to first century logic, if Paul is in a Roman prison, then the gods of Rome are stronger than the God whom Paul serves. This is the logic of the day. This is the air they breathe. Paul's in prison. We must be losing. Which makes sense. Why is Paul in prison? Well, if you go back into the book of Acts, it's because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And actually, they were falsely accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which is something he really didn't do. But that's what he was being accused of. And he's thrown in prison. He's thrown in prison. And he says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus or of Christ Jesus. This is really interesting, right? Who does he declare is his warden, Jesus. 
Jesus. Like, mind you, he's in a Roman jail cell, but he's pointing to Christ. He's saying, yeah, 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 no, I get it, I get it. Like, obviously, what may appear is that I'm imprisoned by Rome, but, but no, no, you don't get it. I'm under lock and key because of Jesus. I'm under lock and key because of Christ, Messiah, King. Right, I think that's important that as we read through our New Testament, when you see that word Christ, and, and some of us might know this, right? That's not a last name, right? That's not like just like, oh, it's Jesus Christ, right? His, his dad was Joseph Christ. Like, no, 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 no. Christ is a title, and it means Messiah, and it carries royal implications. It means, it means my, my, my prison warden, Jesus, the king. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the one who was chosen to fulfill all things that we have been thinking and reading about all of our lives. The king has me under lock and key. Why? On behalf of you Gentiles. So his suffering, his imprisonment is for the sake of others. His imprisonment is for the sake of others. And that's important that we wrap our minds around that because we're not just talking about like random suffering or suffering that we, we kind of come under because we're just like not nice people, right? Like maybe, maybe someone like flipped you the bird because you cut them off. Like that's not suffering, right? That's because you were not driving properly. Now, granted, they shouldn't have done what they did, but still that's not suffering on behalf of another, that's not what we're getting at in this particular passage. This is the sort of suffering, this is the sort of imprisonment that comes when we decide to enter in to the mission of God. When we decide to enter in to the suffering of others. And that's what Paul is about. And that's what he's trying to outline in this text. It's interesting, I was reading through this text all week. And, and I'm sitting there, I'm going through it, I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is about the mystery, this is about um, all this interesting stuff about Jew and Gentile coming together. But then as I kept on going, I realized, like, no, I think Paul's trying to get across something. He's, he's pointing out this idea of imprisonment and suffering, because that's what he books at, bookends the passage with. And when a, when a biblical writer is bookending a passage, that's typically what he wants you to pay attention to. That does not mean the other things don't matter, but it just means he wants you to focus in on this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And it feels like he's about to jump into his prayer, right? But then he interrupts his prayer with a couple of things. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by, by revelation as I have written. He interrupts his prayer in verse two, and he talks about what he is. He said, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Stewardship, overseer, master of the house, ambassador. These are, these are, kind, these are the kinds of words that should come to mind when we think of this term stewardship. That God gifted this authority over to Paul. Now, Paul is not the boss. He's serving on behalf of the boss. He's serving on behalf of the boss. Similar to how an ambassador of another country, they represent their country. What's happening here is that Paul is representing his king. He's representing the Messiah. He's representing the kingdom of God. Assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Again, who's it for? 
for you. For you. Right? This is the beauty of ministry, right? This is the thing that we get to do. It's, it's a gift of grace, according to assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of what? Of God's grace. We don't deserve this calling. We don't deserve this thing that has been given to us to proclaim the good news of Christ, to proclaim the mystery that all things in heaven and earth are coming together, that Jew and Gentile have been reconciled, that the dividing wall of hostility has been, has been obliterated. We don't deserve any of that, but it's by God's grace. And it's not so that we can just revel in God's grace. We're given this grace this stewardship so that we might serve others. And, and some of you might be thinking, it's like, oh, no, no, but, but Pastor John, it's, he's talking about himself right now. That doesn't apply to me. But, but elsewhere in the scriptures, what does Paul say? He says, follow me as I what? Follow Christ. So as we look at the ministry of Paul, we can say like, okay, I get it. This is what God was doing in your life. So there's going to be similar things that apply to my own life as I go about serving the king today in 2020 here in Tom's River in Ocean County on the Jersey Shore, there's going to be some overlap. No, we're not apostles. That's not what I'm trying to get at here. We don't, we don't have every single thing that Paul has, but certainly his posture, his imagination, that he is able to view imprisonment, suffering, as a gift. He's able to view imprisonment and suffering as a gift of God's grace. That takes imagination. That takes creativity. That we look around at our situation, our status, whatever it is that we are dealing with in life. And we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can reimagine that scenario and understand it in view of the fact that the reality of the world is that Jesus is seated on the throne, not Caesar. That's the important thing, I think, about this text, is that, is that Paul is reimagining his imprisonment, reimagining his suffering, and understanding it in light of reality. Because although Paul is imprisoned by Rome, he understands that it is Christ who is seated on the throne and that nothing happens that is not ordained by God himself. Therefore, Paul reimagines his imprisonment to be a gift of grace for what? For the sake of his people. For the sake of others. I was, I was reminded of a passage in John where Jesus is interacting with Pilate. And it says this, he said, so Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And I love Jesus' answer. What does he say? You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. Who's the one crucifying Jesus? Yeah, it's Rome, but ultimately it's God who is in control. And the suffering that Jesus enters into is a suffering that he, that he willingly goes into for what reason? For the sake of the world. For the sake of the, the bringing together of heaven and earth, which what does that mean? That results in our salvation. Oh, what a wonderful gospel. What a wonderful gospel that we, 
who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been brought near. But how have we been brought near to God? Through the death of our king. Through the death of our king. If that's not irony, then I don't know what is. Because again, how do we view death? How do we view imprisonment? That's, those are the people that lose the battle. But here, Paul is trying to give us a new lens to view the world through. That it's actually by death and suffering that glory is achieved. That it's actually by death and suffering that glory is achieved. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the mystery that is unfolding. And even as you see mystery throughout the scriptures, it's not simply just dealing with the reconciling of all things, but it's also dealing with the fact that like, no one was expecting the Messiah to die. Yes, there are Old Testament prophecies that deal with the, the Messiah dying, but ultimately like the, the Jewish people were reading these texts and they were not expecting their Messiah to die. And they were probably thinking like, oh, this is hyperbole, sure, right? Like, yeah, by his stripes we are healed. Oh, of course, yeah, no, the Messiah is going to be great. But I don't think anyone was really expecting for the Messiah to hang on a Roman cross, which is why it was so shocking to people and why it was so scandalous to people. And Paul is picking up on that story as a prisoner of Christ. And so too we are called to pick up on the same story and be those prisoners of Christ. We're going to get back to that in a second because I want to keep working through this passage. But verse 4 goes like this. When you re read this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations that it has now been revealed revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's Paul doing? He's, he's pointing to this new age, right? He's pointing to this new age, the age of the Spirit, where the veil is being removed. Where the veil that, that prevented us from, from understanding the mystery of Jesus, the revelation of Christ, is, is being removed so that now we are given new eyes to see. And how are we given eyes to see? By what? It says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been now revealed to his holy prophets and apostles. By what? By the Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that indwells every single follower of Jesus is the means by which we can open up this book and understand what God is trying to teach us. Yes, granted, there are many people who do not possess the Spirit of God that can read this book and, and give you all the literary understanding and, and, and the history and, and its valuable information. But as it pertains to our salvation as it pertains to the good news of Jesus, that he truly is the king of kings and that he truly is the ruler of all and that we participate and share in that life, we understand that because we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We have been given insight. And no, we are not the apostles and prophets that are being referred to here. But again, by way of analogy, we can understand that, that the thing that we possess, the person that we possess, is the means by which we too 
understand the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ. We get it. And what is it that we get? We get that the reality of the world is that Jesus is on the throne. And even though it might not appear as such, for sure it must not have appeared that Jesus was on the throne as Paul was sitting in a Roman jail cell. But by the power of the Spirit, he's able to reimagine his context, his circumstances, and understand that, yes, Jesus is king. And while it doesn't feel like that right now, I can glory in that truth. And many of us are in this room right now who are going through whatever it is that you might be experiencing, whether it's marital strife, whether it's, it's conflict with a family member, conflict at work, whatever the case may be, sickness or death, whatever it is. And what Paul is getting at here, he's like, reimagine that. Think through that. The reality of the world is that Jesus is king even in your suffering, especially in your suffering, especially in your pain. That he is the one coming alongside you. And while it might hurt, and while it might feel all sorts of horrible, Jesus is king, I promise you. I promise you. Are we able to reimagine our circumstances like Paul did? Are we able to understand that our circumstances are not what they seem? And in fact... Not only just trusting that Jesus is on the throne, but allowing our circumstances to be used by God for the sake of others. That's the hard part, right? Because I think it, I think it is easier to kind of just be like, all right, I can, I can deal with the fact that, that my suffering is from God. And, and, and from God's a hard thing to really articulate. Not in the sense that like God is like punishing you, but God is allowing things to happen in your life for your good, for your sanctification. But, but I think it's easier to sit back and be like, okay, I can deal with that, I can deal, and I can rest in that. But then he pushes us a little further. He says, not only do you rest in that, but now what I want you to do, I want you to use that pain, use that suffering, use the, even the self-inflicted suffering, but when you cut that guy off on the, like even that kind of suffering, where you were inflicted, you know, that whole, yeah. Even that suffering, I want you to use it for the sake of your brothers and sisters, for the sake of the world around you. I want you to reimagine that. I want you to take that pain, everything that you are going through, and allow God to repurpose it for his mission. That's grace. That's redemption. That's taking the brokenness of this world. That's taking, that's taking what, the, what the devil had intended in Genesis chapter 3 and how the world just got blown to bits. That's taking all that and saying, no, 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 no. I'm still king and I'm going to use this for my purposes. Allow God to use that suffering and that brokenness for his purposes. Lean into that suffering because that's how the world is being recreated in Christ. Think about it. Jesus did not... Make all things new by, by riding in on a, on a steed. Like he will in, in, the, in the future, he will. But, but, but he did not begin that way. He began by riding on a donkey and heading to the cross. Heading to the cross. The scandalous cross that anyone who hangs on a tree is accursed by God. And that's how Jesus is recreating the world. Why do we think that it's going to be different for us? It's not. 
And I don't say this to, to, like, to kind of like slap you and say, like, get your head right. No, no, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us that, that yes, there is real pain in this world. There is real suffering. We've been sinned against. We've been treated poorly. We've sinned against others. We've inflicted pain. And God's saying, guess what? I, I, want, I know, I know. The world's, the world's not a good place. But we're taking it back. We're taking it back in the name of Christ by the power of the resurrection through the work of the Holy Spirit that is manifested where? In the church. This is, this is good news. This is good news, Redeemer. Right? I've been saying this week in and week out that the gospel is more than just our salvation. It is that. But it's more. It's bigger than that. The good news is that Jesus is king. The good news is that we get to, to live on behalf of that king. We get to go out and speak truth into the world. We get to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, in Tom's River, on the Jersey Shore. We get to do that. That is the grace of God. That is pure grace. Pure grace. He goes on. He says, verse 4, verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations that has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The nature of the mystery, or at least a portion of the mystery, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, co-heirs, heirs together. And that Gentiles are members of the same body or members together. And that Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel or partakers together in Christ. And the reason why I keep on mentioning together is because the words used in the original language are the same words that popped up in the first chapter, these together verbs. These together verbs that are just kind of peppered through the book of Ephesians because what is Paul getting at? He's getting at the unity of the church, that there is no dividing wall of hostility anymore. And we talked about that last week, and that it began with obliterating that wall between Jew and Gentile, and that it continues into this day, that there is no dividing wall, that regardless of race, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, regardless of those things, we are in this together. We are in this together. That's so important that we get that. And so when we have someone who is a prisoner of Christ like Paul is or suffering on behalf of Christ as Paul was, and there are many in our midst that we suffer, how? Together. We do this together. That's why it's so important that we exist not as individual Christians, but that we exist as the community of faith. That we, we honor this thing called the church, this plural thing, this, this corporate thing that we call the church, and that we shoulder one another's burdens, that we care for one another, that we come alongside one another, and that we allow the mess of others to get on us so that we come out filthy too. That's the idea, that we are going to be just as messy as the people who are a mess because we have entered into that on behalf of Christ. This is a beautiful thing. And many of you have experienced this, where the church has come alongside you. And if you haven't, I, I'm sorry that you haven't. And, I, and, I, and that, if that is the case, I'd, I, I want to I hear that from you. I want to actually talk to you. 
Because that is not how the church should function. And if it is how we are functioning, we want to change. We don't want to be that kind of a church. And we want to hear that. If, if we're missing something, we want to know. We want to know where we're dropping the ball. Because, because like we, are, we don't think that we've got this whole thing figured out. We don't sit there in elders meetings and kind of look at each other and be like, yeah, all right, we got this. This is good, right? We're crushing this thing. I mean, half our elder team is out sick, so clearly we're doing something wrong. No, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. That's a lie. That's not how it works. But, like, that's not what we think. Like, we want that feedback. We want to serve you better. We, we, we do this for you. And our prayer is that you would do this ministry thing, this Christian thing, on behalf of one another. Because we are in this together. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are one in Christ. Let us shoulder these burdens together. Let us walk with one another. Even that, that concept of walking that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Those two paths, right? We can either participate in the spirit that is working the sons of disobedience or we can participate in the spirit of Christ. And so with whom are we walking? When we do this thing alone, and when we say, like, we don't need your help, we're not walking the path of righteousness. We're just not. We're not. We're actually being deceived, thinking that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and figure this whole thing out by ourselves. And that's just not true. That goes against the teachings of Scripture. God has called us, as we saw in the first couple of chapters, he's called us into a community. He's called us into, it's, it's not just this individual Lone Ranger Christianity. We do this together. We do this together. That's the mystery, that, that all things are coming together. Even the most unexpected thing, Jew and Gentile, even that is coming together. So that means us as a body of Christ need to come together. And we need to love one another and we need to show that love to the world. Because that's what we're called to. So we suffer. We suffer on behalf of one another. And some of us might not be struggling right now. Some of you might have walked in this morning and, and you're feeling great. Life's good. Bank account's looking good. House is looking good. Kids are all following Jesus. Everything's great. That's great. That's great. That's a wonderful thing. Don't sit there. Use that. Use that, that season of goodness to come alongside the brokenness that you're surrounded by. And if you don't know of any brokenness, go to community group, listen to the people talking. I guarantee you, you will hear about brokenness. I guarantee you. Be in community with people because that's how you're gonna learn about the brokenness of others. If you stay in your home with your kids who are all following Jesus and you never venture out, then, then you won't hear about the brokenness. But go, step out in faith, trusting God. Step into relationships with others so that you might get their mess on you. That's what Jesus did when he entered into this world. That's what he did in Philippians 2 when we read about the incarnation of Christ. Have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus, who although did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing. Why? For us. For us. Lean into that calling. That's the calling of Christ. So he, he closes up this section, and, and I'm kind of lying because he doesn't close up this section, but we're closing up this section here in verse 7. He says this. He says, of this gospel, of this gospel, 
I was made a minister. Which gospel? The gospel that he was just talking about a second ago. The gospel that is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. The gospel that divided the the wall, that broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The gospel that made you alive when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. The gospel that that rescued you from the path that the sons of disobedience were walking on. The gospel that rescued you from the prince of the power of the air. The The gospel that rescued you from the wrath of God. That gospel, that's the one he's talking talking about of this gospel the one about Jesus who died and rose again and is seated at the the right hand of the father this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace again it's grace ministry being a member of the church caring for your brothers and sisters serving the poor the broken the marginalized the oppressed That's a gift of grace. That is a gift of grace. We get to be a part of God's kingdom, of his kingdom work, as he is bringing together heaven and earth. We get to be a part of the crushing of Satan beneath our feet. Romans talks about how Satan will be crushed underneath our feet by Christ. Like where the instrument in the toolbox that he's taking out to kind of slam the devil into the ground like where where the weaponry like think about that and we're gonna we're gonna get into that as we look at the end of this book when we get into the the armor of God and we're gonna see how the armor of God that is talked about is actually the armor of Yahweh himself the Lord Almighty that he puts upon us the church so that we can be used by him to be the means by which evil is being snuffed out in this world. And it starts here. It starts in our midst. It starts by coming alongside one another. This is the grace of the ministry that we've all been called to. Yes, again, this is about Paul. But but please understand, we are to follow Paul as he followed Christ. So that when we see Paul doing things, we can be like, okay, like, how does that apply to me? Like, you're a Christian, you're following Jesus, you're doing it pretty well. I mean, you're Paul the Apostle, and you're, you're kind of crushing it. Like, how can I follow that example? We follow that example by, by relying on the Spirit, by relying on one another, by, by searching the Scriptures alone and together as a community. Because, because that's what we do, a community group, right? We wrestle with these things. And God's calling us to to continue in that and to allow these things to actually affect our lives. He goes on. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. By the working of his power. Again, it's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God. Do we believe that we truly are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That's got to resonate with us. We forget it, I think, often. I know I do. I forget it often. Because, again, right, we go through our days. We just live our life, and and we get caught up in the monotony of the day-to-day, and we forget, and we kind of get this tunnel vision thing, where we're just, we're, we've got you know, to keep doing what we've got to do, what's in front of us. And there's truth to that. You have to do what's in front of us. I'm not saying that we should neglect our responsibilities. What I'm saying is that allow the Spirit of God to give you those eyes to see. 
so that you can be aware of what's happening around you. Right, I noticed this, right? Like, like kids, are, kids are funny like for so many reasons. But, but in particular, I notice like as I see like kids kind of going to the bathroom like and running out the doors and stuff like that, kids, kids don't really know what's going on around them. Have you ever noticed that? Like they kind of just go, right? And like there can be like, like, like a 95-year-old woman like just unable to walk. And what happens? A kid just races by them like because they don't. And again, I, kids aren't doing this maliciously. They're just, they got blinders on. They're not paying attention. And so what do we tell our kids? Like, you got to pay attention. You got to look. You got to be aware of what's going on around me. My old man used to tell me this all the time. He's like, you got to watch. And I used to be like, well, watch what? What are we watching? And we still say there's a joke in our house. Like, like my mama like hurt herself and was like, you got to watch. You got to watch. You're not watching. And maybe that's, no, she laughs. I mean, whatever. But the point is, is that like kids don't watch, but we're not kids. We're in Christ. And Jesus is saying, allow the Spirit to open your eyes. Look around. Be aware. There is brokenness all around us. That's an opportunity for us to step into it and get messy. That's a gift. That's a gift that God allows suffering in our midst so that we can be used by God. How are we reimagining our suffering? How are we reimagining our own imprisonments? The nature of our calling is one that requires us to rejoice in whatever circumstances we're in. That doesn't mean that we rejoice about the circumstances. Like, I don't, like, if someone passes away, I don't think we, like, like you know, get, like, like noise machines out and, like, so, like, that's not, like, like, no, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to weep. That's not what that's getting at. It's saying that in the midst of that mourning, in the midst of that suffering, Rejoice because you are a child of the king and use that suffering. Allow God to use that pain that morning for the sake of those around you. Allow God in. The nature of the gospel is that victory was achieved through a Roman cross and it is advanced through a Roman jail cell. It was achieved on the cross, and it is advanced through a Roman prison. And the question we need to be asking is, where are we imprisoned right now? What is our prison? What is our Roman jail cell? Maybe it's a job that you despise with a boss who treats you horrifically. I'm sure many can resonate with that. God's placed you there. He's calling you to bear his image in the midst of that wicked and crooked generation. Maybe you're in the midst of a difficult time in your marriage. God has you there for your good. And also for the good of those around you as they peer in and they see what reconciling grace can truly accomplish. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you're struggling with your kids. They're driving you insane, making life miserable. And, and maybe we don't even want to say that because, because God forbid we ever say anything like negative about our, our, what our children can make us feel. And even breaking that and allowing, like, no, like, be honest with others and allow God to, to reconstruct your vision toward that, your pain, so that you can view the world through the grid of the cross, knowing that it is Christ who is king who is in control. And use that frustration at home to, to minister to other moms who are staying at home and struggling and, and, and having a difficult time. 
Allowing God to use those times of pain. The nature of our walk with Jesus is one of humility. And we are all prisoners of war, but our day of liberation awaits. But in the interim, we're called to have the mind of Christ. Which means that that suffering, that pain, that imprisonment is for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And for the sake of the world around us. Again, victory was achieved through a Roman cross and it is advanced through a Roman prison. And we are those prisoners indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus wherever we go. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have been rescued from death, not so that we can sit around and do nothing, but so that we can be unleashed on the world to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come rejoicing that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And know that when we partake of the bread and the cup, that we are proclaiming the death of Christ, who was crucified on a Roman cross under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. It is a gift of grace that we get to serve King Jesus. And while it may be difficult at times, it will bear fruit. And while we might not be able to see that work, that fruit, God is at work and the enemy is being crushed to pieces beneath our feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for how you love your people, Father. I thank you for how you have rescued us from death and given us life in your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that this morning, Lord, we would be challenged by the words that we've heard, by the, by the wonder of the gospel, by the example set forth by the Apostle Paul, by the mission to be the means by which God is revealing this mystery that all things, things in heaven and on earth, are being reconciled together in Christ Jesus. I pray that that would be on our minds this morning, Father, and that that would carry us throughout the week, Father. We love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.